Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Callan FM. With me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. And this week we're talking about the sport of kings. That's right, horse racing. It's the second biggest spectator sport in Britain with annual attendances of more than 6 million, apart from in 2020 for obvious reasons. And it contributes around 100,000 jobs and three and a half million pounds to the national economy. I know very little about horse racing, Heather. I've been to a few meetings, um, mostly as corporate entertainment, actually. Um, very nice. I've fallen off a horse once, and a great great grandfather used to be a stableman or a groom in in a stud farm in Westmoreland. And I've visited the stud farm in Ireland. That's it. That's the extent of my knowledge. So um, in terms of research for this, I was completely fresh, apart from I know what a horse is. (laughs) What did you find out about the business of horse racing, Heather? Well, firstly, I I chose this subject. And the reason I chose it is because recently we were talking about um, David Beckham. And my husband and I have a lot of conversations well not a lot of conversations but we we had had a conversation about how does football work how do people make money why are footballers so rich uh, why why are they paid a wage so we've we've discussed that at length and i i said well what about horse racing you know what how how do jockeys earn their money what about trainers what about breeders what about owners you know who is making the money in in horse racing so i decided that it would i thought it would be interesting to have a look at the different strands and it seems that actually unless you've already got quite a lot of money to speculate with and can afford to buy some of the greatest thoroughbred horses or um have horses that you then put to stud and are able to raise money that way you you're not going to make that much money uh there was an article that um had a little um infographic and not least it was talking about breeding a racehorse um and essentially they they say that for example in 2019 you might start planning who you would mate which horse which horse you would mate and who you would mate it with which horse you would mate it with so there's a load of planning and negotiation and all stuff going on there then in 2020 you might say that the mayor is pregnant 2021 the foal is born you might sell the foal 2022 you might sell it as a yearling 2023 it's a two-year-old it may have raced it may not have raced a three-year-old you might sell it for breeding stock or you might put it to stud and then it retires so actually that's a five-year span potentially well it's expensive to feed a horse stable a horse groom a horse so insure a horse all of those different things um so potentially there's not a lot of money to be had and then if you roll that on to the people who are um training the horses and stabling the horses their overheads are massive and the money that they're able to to charge is limited because they they may have to rent their stable they'll have staff grooms um they'll need to pay jockeys to ride ride work you know exercise the horses um the valet who 
handles the equipment that the jockey uses gets gets some money you know there's there's loads and loads of people taking a bite of the cherry uh and unless you're right at the top end and likely to earn some of the big money um it, it's it's a tough gig it is a really tough gig yeah i saw an article in this is money where they talked about um syndicates uh, but they also refer to the fact that training racing and veterinary costs can add up to in the region of £28,000 a year per horse. So you need some big money to be able to do that yeah. or a lot of you to pool together to yeah. be able to pay for it. Talking about the big money, I, the first article I read was The Billionaires and the Business of Horse Racing. And this is on Forbes' website. And interestingly enough, there weren't that many. <laughs> no. There was maybe um, 15 or so. I'd not heard of any of them before. They're all around the world. America, there were quite a few there. It, Forbes is an American website, but they did cover billionaires all around the world. But the majority of people are not millionaires in the business of horse racing. But then, should I say the business of horse racing? I, I waded into a, an article, which was a bit of an argument between two opposing opinions some gentleman called jerry brown had written an opinion piece in thoroughbreddailynews.com where he said that he thought that horse racing was a business and not a sport Ooh. and then the person who wrote the article that i i read started off by saying with all due respect which is never a good start I'm no. not sure they actually mean with any respect. No. <laughs> and then he added, sincerely. <laughs> so with all due respect, sincerely, I disagree with Jerry. And so the whole article was then about how horse racing is a sport and not a business. And it did make me wonder whether they could not just agree to disagree and racing can be both a sport and a business. Well, presumably football is. So of course and i think there are lots of obviously business elements to it like you say running the stables and the transporting and the veterinary care and everything else around it not just the race itself even just managing the whole event that's a massive project um organizations are involved in every single race meet that you might not even consider are related to horse racing but they're all part of the act the other thing I was really intrigued was to look into the um, the qualifications available um, for horse racing. I found two. Um, presumably there are more of these undergraduate degrees. So I found the BA Honours in International Horse Racing Business. And this was at Hartbury University. It's developed specifically for the horse racing industry with partnerships with um, the professionals in the industry as well um, looks like you'd get some experience in placements as well in that degree presumably there are other of those around the country around the world indeed however the next qualification that i found claims to be the only qualification of its type and this is just down the road from us here in liverpool university they do a postgraduate degree thoroughbred horse racing industries mba they claim it's the only master's level qualification in the world 
and it's delivered through an exclusive partnership with the British Horse Racing Authority, the Horse Race Betting Levy Board and the Racing Foundation. So interesting stuff. I didn't even know. I, well, I didn't even consider there would be a qualification in that. No. So, you know, there's there are so many different aspects to consider. Um, they they get equine knowledge with the University School of Veterinary Science, but they talk about it's they've got links with racehorses, racehorsing governance and administration, trainers, owners, breeders, the gambling industry, media, all of those and events um, organizations as well. So, yeah, so if you want to go and do a degree or a master's degree, you can do it in horse racing if you want to as well. I think where the in the industry um or the sport um will suffer massively is of, of course a lot of the revenue is generated by ticket sales by course sales um and you know bars and food actually on the course never mind the money that that um the the bookmakers make uh but but i still um i was looking through what pr sort of prize money People, people might earn so at royal ascot for example this year um the big races seem to be generating about two hundred and fifty thousand pounds prize money uh but then they are also races that will have thirty five thousand pound prize money and i guess that's you know why if you're if you're riding the big hitters and you win then you get a percentage whether you're the jockey whether you're the groomsman whether you're the owner whether you're the trainer you know what once all of your little percentages go a percent a percentage of thirty-five thousand isn't that much um a percentage of 250 slightly better but still remembering as a jockey they reckon that a jockey travels about 40 to sixty thousand miles a year spends about six thousand pounds a year on fuel well you know I lease a car and we do 60,000 in three years, you know, so the transport costs is, costs are amazing, uh, never mind um, transporting horses. So, yeah, maybe maybe a bit more thought needs to be put into our business plan before we decide to go out and buy a thoroughbred and um, race it at Ascot. But if you're interested in owning a racehorse, there are other ways to do it than just uh, being a multimillionaire, although being a multimillionaire would be nice. Um, apparently 60% of racehorses trained in Britain are in some form of joint ownership, either a syndicate or a partnership. And syndicates make money if their horse wins or gets placed in a bet or if it's sold in the future. An even cheaper way to um, be involved in owning a horse is to join a racing club and their members pay an annual membership, but they don't actually own the horses and the prize money is shared between the members. But if the horse is sold, then they don't get any of the share of the profits. But I would add at this point, owning a racehorse is a gamble. It is definitely not a serious investment. Your expected return is low. Only a few horses will be superstars. And if you are going to invest in a horse, make sure it's money that you can afford to lose. It's the same with any type of gambling, really. You know, don't, um, don't put any more on the, on the horse than you can afford to lose. So, um, yeah, I've no interest in owning a racehorse, Heather. Is it something you've ever considered? No, 
no, I've been on two horses in my life and neither experience was good. Um, and uh, somebody famously said that they're dangerous at the front and dangerous at the back. I, think so. I don't think it's a good combination. <laughs> You're listening to the business community on Callan FM. And in other news this week, I've picked up an article from computerworld.com and they're talking about Google repositioning Gmail as a collaboration hub for video chat and document access, looking to take on rivals like Microsoft and Slack. Now, it's quite interesting because I did used to use Google Hangouts as a meeting tool. Did you ever use that, Heather? No, I, no, I never did. But I know a lot of people who have, but no, yeah. it didn't make its way onto my radar. And then Google stopped doing it, uh, presumably because they were um, redesigning their offering. But in the, in the meantime, whilst Google Hangouts wasn't available, I ended up finding other ways to have meetings and to do um, chats. So they've now got meet video and chat teams and messaging applications. And I do use a lot of Google's uh, products. I use uh, Gmail, I use Google Calendars, I use Maps, Google Keep, probably a whole host of other things I can't think of at the moment. But I don't really use it for collaboration tools in the same way as I might use Teams. I use that very much in the workplace. Um, and I don't use Slack, but you know, I, I use Zoom and webex and other meeting tools um so i'm not quite sure what it would need to have to make me want to move from the things i'm already using but they're i i suppose they're in a good position because a lot of people do use gmail even if they're using uh, business email addresses you can route it through gmail without anybody knowing that you're using gmail and i, I find that actually it's one of the better email tools uh, that's out there because it, it does a lot of the sorting automatically for you does it rather well so perhaps they could lure me in that way um, by by making sure that it links in with calendars and emails quite nicely but at the moment uh, I think I'll need to be convinced to use it for collaboration I'm looking forward to seeing how this develops um, with some interest but I don't feel like there's a gap in my requirements at the moment I don't know what you think, Heather. I think it's interesting that you said that in that moment when they removed Hangouts as an option, you found something else. And that's yeah. that classic, you know, that why didn't they have something else in place, something better in place? Because they run the risk of losing customers, which they, they clearly have with you. But one thing that, that um, I saw an article about this week, uh, well, first of all, did you know that earlier this week, was uh, World Emoji Day. I really did not know that, no. I didn't even <laughs> know tell that, me more. <laughs> well, I didn't even know that emojis had that day. And did you know that last year an emoji trend report was conducted? Well, and it no. found that 61% of employees use emojis in the workplace. Do you? That, I, I do a lot more now, yeah. Yeah, well, this article was written by the founder of Slack and he, um, the head of Slack, sorry, and he, he believes that 
uh, emojis really help in just giving that balance of what the intention was. We've had many years of people texting and you thinking they're being a bit funny or a bit offish. The emoji can help with that. And it, so it sort of lightens the load. But he's talking very much, particularly through um, lockdown and while people have been working from home and, and working remotely, uh, that it's served really well to just put a bit of personality and a bit of fun and engagement into conversations. However, on a slightly more serious note, I mean, we can all send an oh my God emoji or, you know, whatever it might be. But he's saying that you could actually use emojis to show um, very succinctly and very quickly uh, to convey a message rather than saying, I mean, for example, he says, you know, if you're working from home and you need to sort out the kids, you could just send a picture of the kids, uh, not a picture of the kids, an emoji of kids or the dog or whatever, or the loo, if you, you know, you, I need to take a break, go to the loo. But he also said that you could use through the different Slack channels, and if you don't use Slack, then this might not make a lot of sense to you, but essentially you can have strands and channels and group conversations. And you could perhaps agree in a particular group that you use certain emojis to convey certain things, such as, I've done that, I've not seen that, I've finished that. So that it, it you know, rather than everybody having to say, just to let you know, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've read that report or whatever. You can, you can just use emojis to, uh, to, to e ease that along. I suppose it's kind of a new language, really. What um, I'd really but, like to know, Heather, is whether he wrote the article in emojis. Not a thing. Not a, not a, not a wanna. Not a single emoji in the whole. I believed article. him more if he'd written it in emojis. Uh, totally totally but what he does mention and i'm just going to put this out there in case it becomes a word that is um becomes part of our vocabulary he's talking about the reactji channeler Re so i think it's a combination of reaction and emoji oh <laughs> so he talks about and you can set that up in slack so again if you're not using slack not a lot of point but I wonder whether, because he, he seems hell-bent on making that um, part of our vocabulary. So you heard it, you heard it here first, react <laughs> Well, this isn't anywhere near as, uh, as exciting as react but I wanted to mention that this, um, the business body, CBI Wales, is going to have a new chair from January next year. It's a lady called Catherine Roberts, and she's the senior partner of a law firm called Evershed Sutherland. And she's also going to join the CBI Chairs Committee, which is responsible for setting and steering CBI policy. And she has been involved with the CBI Wales previously, and she served as vice chair. Um, she's also served as a member of the Thriving at Work Leadership Council, and is a founding member of Monumental Welsh Women, which sounds very exciting. And I feel like I need to read more about that, Monumental Welsh Women. Uh, she was appointed partner at Evershed Sutherland in 2000, senior partner in 2015, and heads a team of over 4,000 at the international law firm's Cardiff office. So you heard that here. She's going to join CBI Wales as the new head from January next year. What else have you got, Heather? 
Okay, I've got the high street is is all over the news at the moment, uh, and I did notice an article in the Evening Standard that uh, the former boss of Tesco, um, Terry Leahy, has called on government to relax planning regulations and abolish business rates to aid a revamp of Britain's barren high streets. He's saying that if we thought it was bad before effectively it's it's really tough now the high street has been really struggling uh, slightly controversially um they mentioned that when he was in charge of tesco's uh, tesco's did drive quite an aggressive out of town um retail uh, <laughs> development um push um so you know that might be attributed by some to you know have not helped but essentially he's saying look you know, the government need to help here. And the way to do it is through um, restricting planning rules and through easing business rates and looking at taxation as well. Um, so watch this space. But then on a slightly brighter note, uh, I saw an article over the weekend about um, there being a sharp rise. This is on the BBC, a sharp rise in the number of people signing up to sell Avon beauty products during lockdown apparently between late march and early june you know right in the depths of lockdown the number of uk sales representatives was double that from last year uh, and it, it, they interview a few people who've been involved now did you know that avon's been going for um 130 years Oh, I didn't realise it was that old. I do remember no. it from my childhood. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah the but Avon I would lady. Say it's been going for a good while before my childhood. <laughs> well, yeah, long, long time. But apparently, um, there are lots of people who some people are doing it on a temporary basis because they to subsidise their furlough pay. Some people are doing it. Um, because they want to grow it into you know a bigger business some people are doing it while they're not not able to study or not able to go and do the stuff that they normally do there's one lady who is an artist and she normally sells paintings through her etsy store uh, but um she she said she usually would be doing custom work you know weddings anniversaries and big celebrations but then everything stopped so she went from earning 400 pounds a week doing three to four paintings to next to nothing so she decided to um to sell a bit of avon to subsidize her income it wasn't generating that sort of money but uh, but yeah it, it it was quite nice to see that avon's still going strong uh and that people are using their nows and you know, finding other ways to make money. But uh, I didn't know it was 130 years old, I have to admit. That's, that, yeah. that surprised me. Yeah. Mm. Ding dong Avon calling. Yeah. In our discovery section this week, I've got something that I was teasing you with last week. I said that I, I would be playing with it uh, and share it with you today. And so I'm so excited that I don't know, well, I think we've talked quite a lot about Zoom and Teams and these sort of virtual conferencing um, platforms and how most of us have spent our time, you know, tidying part of the room behind us so that nobody can see that, you know, your spare room is actually a mess or that the dog's asleep on the sofa or whatever. So we've been trying to portray this professional image 
through our computer screens. Um, and so I've decided to build on that a little bit. So I've treated myself to a green screen because I've been on Zoom meetings and people have either been, I mean, the classic ones are sitting on a tropical beach or they're by the Golden Gate Bridge or something. But actually, a lot of video that's being made and, and, and put out on social media has got some really nice professional background images. It might be your logo or it might be um, it might might just be a space that is totally conducive with the type of um, video that you're recording. So I popped along to a well-known um, online retailer and had a look at what options they had for green screening. And of course, the benefit is if you've got a green screen behind you, then you can select your own background, your own image uh, as you wish. So um, I ended up spending £45 on a pop up green screen. Now, it's great. It comes it comes in a circular bag, like a carry bag. Uh, wonderful. Oh, my goodness. I unzipped the bag and it popped up. <laughs> nearly broke my arm um but it's gray on one side and green on the other and the, it's got some sort of hangy bits so you can hang it up and suspend it so what i've been spending my time doing is moving it around my office trying to decide where i get the maximum impact which chair i need to be sitting on how far away the laptop needs to be etc but at the moment where do you think i am tracy i think you're somewhere near the arctic circle with the uh, aurora borealis gl glimmering and shimmying behind your head i take it you're not no i'm in little old oswestry in my office um and there's a white wall behind this green screen with pictures on but um yeah so it, it's it's a bit of fun but it's also got a professional point to it because i want to be able to record some webinars i want to be able to record some video footage and i want it to be consistent and i want it i don't want it to just look like i'm sitting in an office there's nothing wrong with my office but it's not the image that i want to portray so uh it, yeah get yourself a green screen if you if you want to do that it, it it just helps with that brand consistency. So my plan is that I'll be able to have my logo. And then I've also been online to um, a website and the name escapes me, sorry about this, um, but I will find it out, where you can record your video. It will run the subtitles. It will insert them at the bottom of your image. You verify the subtitles and it will insert them at the bottom of, of your image. Um, so I'm hoping that this green screen is gonna help me to appear professional i would say that the green screen does really lend something to the background that you don't see when people are just using um the, the blank background behind them so it, it does look a lot more crisp and I, when i've tried to do the um the backgrounds on zoom or teams or anything like that sort of cuts out or takes chunks out of your face or whatever because it hasn't quite worked out what the green screen is supposed to be so actually having a smooth even color behind you has really helped out with your cutout looks very good yeah i mean i think it still does have i think i was trying it earlier and it did look a little bit like i've been cut out of the newspaper or out of a magazine around my head but but generally speaking i think with the right background um, I think that that will be, um, I think I'll be able to resolve that. So, so that's my discovery. 
What have you got? I've got a book in my hand. It's a very good book and I've got a feeling I'm going to really enjoy owning this book. Um, it's called Visual Thinking by a lady called Wilhelmine Brand. And already I can see on your face you've not heard of that one before. No, I haven't. A new one on you. What I like about it, if I'll just show you, you can appreciate this. The inside... On the first page, there's a flap, and I, I quite like the flaps on the front pages because you can use them as bookmarks. This one is enormous. It's a full page extra flap. So you've got two potentially huge bookmarks in there. I love it. It's laid out really beautifully. Let me tell you what it's about, though. So it's Please about do. using visuals more. Um, I've, I've watched a little video um, of her it's on youtube um just do a search for visual thinking and it pops up right near the top of google um and she talks about the the triangle so um the spoken word the written word and imagery and visuals uh, and particularly hand-drawn ones that you've drawn yourself and she says that a lot of companies in their presentations and in their workshops they they will concentrate on the spoken word and the written word and not a lot of effort is put into visuals a lot of the times because people are afraid to actually draw they don't feel like they've got the skills so this book includes in it how to draw people <laughs> how to draw oh my oh that you might want to put up how to color them in okay because she says that if you're if you're doing a presentation or you're doing some workshops and you actually draw these up on on the whiteboard or on the flip chart the the act of doing that actually becomes a communication in itself so i i really like that but she's also got some brilliant ideas for templates so the contents of the book um the, the contents are actually written as a diagram as well which is very nice oh wow um she talks about visual impact so the first part of it is, is um the importance of visual thinking i'm a very very visual thinker if i'm taking minutes to meetings they often involve drawings and squiggles and yeah. different shapes um then there's a section on basic skills and guidelines for drawing materials type of pens to use how to use basic shapes etc section on visual storytelling and then there's a big section on visual thinking in business settings and it goes to shaping your vision looking for purpose and it's got some examples of, of drawings there goal setting and strategic planning information sharing decision making exploring markets and customer insights idea generating problem solving prototyping and team building and i've i've had a, a look through this i bought it with a specific um goal in mind i, I had a, a project that i needed to facilitate and uh, i'm actually going to use it i'm really excited and I'm, I'm actually going to use some of these drawing tips and i'm going to try and reinvent the way that i present a little bit I like to use stories and like to use visuals. I'm not a big fan of using PowerPoint with words on it at all. Mm. 
and I thought actually I might even move away from PowerPoint if I can build my confidence with actually drawing figures onto flip charts and whiteboards so I'll give it a go and give you some feedback mm. but it's a it's a beautiful book anyway it's not terribly expensive and I really recommend it if you're looking for ways to communicate and to collaborate that take you beyond the PowerPoint with six lines and 18 words. Yeah. On. yeah. Which we all hate. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Visual Thinking by Wilhelmine Brand. She's also got a follow on book called Visual Action, which, having seen this one, I'm tempted I need to get the second book as well. I feel mm. like I need to add it to those already full shelves. <laughs> You're listening to The Business Community on Calon FM. And this week we're profiling a gentleman called Thomas Benjamin Blomfield, or Tom Blomfield. He's the co-founder of Monzo. And that's a challenger bank, which I'm very interested in, but actually realised I know very little about. I didn't know about Tom either, so it's a... It's always a, a surprise to me when we, we're rooting around for people to talk about and then these people just turn up that have had a massive impact in the business world and I'd never even heard of them. So that's why I do this radio show. <laughs> it's a bit of an education, isn't it, Heather? It, keep, it certainly is. It certainly is. Yeah. I never really heard of him. Um, I'd heard a Monzo. Have you had a Monzo card? Have you got a Monzo card? No, but I'm I'm tempted to explore. I do do like the sound of it. I like just the idea of a challenger bank. It sounds so exciting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. Tom Blomfield uh, studied at Oxford, and so I noticed, as with any of these things, you know, sometimes you see something, you go, "What's that mean?" He earned a degree in law, open brackets, jurisprudence, close brackets, from the U University of Oxford. I thought, Ooh, what, what does that mean? I don't know. What does that mean? No. It's a qualifying law degree for the purpose of practice as a solicitor or barrister in England and Wales. It is one of the most highly regarded undergraduate law degrees in the UK. And those who do well in it are in high demand, both in the legal professions and in other fields in which professional analytical work is required. So I think it sounds like he he's pretty smart, but he I think he didn't start out. His father was an entrepreneur. I don't think he started out as a, you know, destined to be a high roller, but but has done some quite amazing things, um, starting with. A website that he built for a local estate agent he charged them 250 quid for the web page and then three pounds for every house that had to be inputted uh, and and you know that turned out to be quite lucrative he got he won a thousand pounds from a business plan competition uh, where he was proposing an ebay for students back in 2004 um, which then expanded to 50 universities across the UK and ran for two years. So he he seems quite adept at taking a small idea and, and taking it to its its max, which is a true entrepreneur, I guess. Yeah, talking of um, you know, sort of founding things and taking them forward, he founded Go Cardless, did you know? That, that... Ah, 
Ah. So he founded that in January 2011. And he seems to have, have moved on through all of these things where you go, wow, that's impressive, that's impressive. And it just seems to build up on it. He did that degree at Oxford, but he decided not to become a lawyer. So he he then went on, as you say, to, um, to do other things, including um, joining forces with a lady called Anne Bowden after he left um, Go Cardless um, and joined her at a Starling Bank, which was uh, another bit of a challenger bank. Um, he left in 2015, and I like this, I want to read between the lines with this, after reports of disagreements <laughs> and saying that he could not comment under the terms of his departure. Um, but uh, he then went on straight after leaving Stalin Bank to co-found Monzo. Now this is absolutely astounding. In its very first fundraising round, the company raised a million pounds in 96 seconds. Incredible. That's absolutely stunning, isn't it? And as of 2019, the company was operating with no branches and instead it offers purely online accounts and the cost of the company of setting up these accounts providing these accounts is between 20 and 30 pounds and that's how they're able to be lean with their concept and clearly the investors agree with him as well um, he's no longer um a ceo he's now the president of monzo so quite an impressive Man, for you know, he's, he's still quite a young age as well. I sound like an old lady here, don't I? Young man, <laughs> <laughs> but that is one heck of a CV, isn't it? It is. He stepped down in May of, of this year. Um, and I found an, uh, a, um, a YouTube uh, video, he hasn't done a TED talk yet, it was part of a Wired conference. And he talks, and I think this might fit in a little bit with his difference of opinion with Anne Bowden um, about her um, her traditional banking connections and methods and his sort of ethos and the way that he likes to, to operate. So I think there might have been a bit of conflict there. But um, he, he was talking about the, the mission and the culture of Monzo and how they have involved well it started off saying that um they they didn't want to make money they wanted to make money work for everyone around the world and he talked about people who are homeless who've just come out of jail they would have access to a, a, a debit card you know they wouldn't need to have a job necessarily because you load the money onto the card and then you spend the the money off of the card he talked about crowdfunding and transparency and even how they got people to vote on what their company name should be and also to vote on what their fee charging structure should be what their price point should be he says that now they've got three million customers in the uk and they've got 1400 staff and they have to work really hard to maintain that original culture and he talked about standing down and um and becoming the president and he's brought in um somebody to replace him and he said and i think i think this is really interesting he said i went through all the stuff i love about my job 
and it was all the stuff I did in the first two or three years. I went through all the stuff that drains me and it's all the stuff that, stuff I've done in the last two years, honestly. And those are things that I think my replacement is awesome at. And that is a true entrepreneur who know, you know, get the idea, make it fly on to the next thing. They're not interested in the day to day. They're not interested in the humdrum. Uh, and I just thought that was such um, an honest uh, statement that, yeah, I'm kind of bored now. <laughs> and, and, and then there's, there's somebody who's better at this than me. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting. Um, that was in an article in FinTech magazine. But, wow. uh, I read an article in finextra.com <laughs> um, and I don't think that uh, Tom would be short of offers from the traditional banks. Uh, this article was written um, last month uh, by Peter Ramsey and he was basically saying that the traditional banks need to bring in people like Tom Blomfield, for example, um, because if if they let Tom Blomfield take over the reins of HSBC, he says, I bet that within two years, HSBC would have a world-class experience for its customers too. And basically, the article is saying that um, the, the banks, um, the Lloyds banks, the Barclays, HSBCs of this world are just not offering customers the same level of experience as the challenger banks are doing. And uh, I think that sort of thinking is really difficult when you're entrenched in the business. And sometimes it takes the newbies, the challengers to come along to really shake your thinking to see that there's a different way and that the customers actually want something different as well. So I think yeah, if Tom was going to, to go and sell his services to other banks, I'm sure they uh, would benefit greatly from it. Yeah, he, he certainly talks about that in the uh, YouTube video, that, that, that sentiment, really. But uh, interestingly, he stood down in May, but in January, his fellow founder, a guy called Paul Rippon, left the company uh, to spend time farming alpacas. Uh, but in April, Tom Blomfield announced he would forget, forego his salary for one year to help his company during the COVID pandemic. Uh, so it, he strikes me as a nice guy. I think he's driven, obviously, and has a sense of purpose and is successful. But I do think that he, through whatever means or method, I think he, he is self-aware enough uh, to recognise that a business is dependent on its culture and its mission and and the people within it so uh, interesting guy never heard never really heard of him heard of monzo um yeah it seems like a a good egg a good egg It'll be so, interesting uh, to see what other projects he goes on to yeah absolutely absolutely yeah thank you for um find, finding him well i guess that's all we've got time for this week thank you very much for tuning in we look forward to seeing you next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business. You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Tracy Jones. And me, Heather Noble. Join us again next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.